Theologian Fleming Rutledge says that death is the great unmentionable topic of our time. How do we know that? All you have to do is look at the greeting card industry. In every single sympathy card, the one word that cannot be used is death. You can say sorry for your loss. We will miss her. We can't believe he passed away. Anything is allowed but the one word, death. And the reason why is because we fear death. I was at a retreat this past week, and one of the speakers was a psychologist and professor named Dr. Richard Beck. And he said that he teaches a class on psychology and Christianity, and he has one goal. He tries to convince college students that they're going to die. He says, it doesn't matter how much gluten you don't eat, how much essential oils you put on your body, how many workouts you try, you will die. He said, it's so funny because these college students cannot acknowledge the one thing that they can know about their future. They think they can know that they're going to get married and have kids and succeed in their jobs and live to a ripe old age of 85, but they don't accept death, the one reliable fact. We also heard Kent Brantley speak, and if you don't know his story, he was in Liberia. He got Ebola, but was transported back to the U.S. and actually recovered. And he said that every year, his family celebrates and remembers that he was saved from a disease. Because even the guy with Ebola forgets that he was so close to death. We fear death. And because we're afraid, we ignore death, we delay death, and try to fight death as much as we can. This week, I began reading a book by Barbara Ehrenreich called Natural Causes, an Epidemic of Wellness, the Certainty of Dying, and Killing Ourselves to Live Longer. She is 78 years old, and she wrote it because she realized she had passed the age where her death would be described as natural After her doctor poked and prodded her for the millionth time, she realized that she had a great fear of death, but this was a pressure not only internal to her, but put on her from the outside. We try to fight, escape, delay, and ignore death. This fall, we've been preaching on the Apostles' Creed, an ancient statement of faith. And last week, Ben talked about the suffering and crucifixion and death and burial of Jesus. And we believe these events really happened. Under Roman rule around 33 AD, we believe God's Son, our Lord, faced the very thing we all fear. But then he went to the next step. He descended to the dead. Now, you may never have heard this line before, but remember this. Everything that Jesus does is for us and for our salvation. He was born for us. He suffered for us. He died for us. He rose for us. And likewise, Jesus descended to the dead for us. This descent is part of the good news. And the good news is actually preached by Peter, one of Jesus' 12 apostles. Now, after Jesus rose from the dead, he gave them a mission to spread the news about his resurrection. And Peter preached a sermon to kind of kick off this mission. And we hear this sermon in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. This is what Peter says. You who are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power and wonders and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and uh, who you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible to be held by its power. Now, let me paraphrase Peter for a second. He's basically saying, there was a Jew named Jesus who did miracles. And all of you heard about it. All of you believe that those miracles happened. No one debates this. But just over a month ago, Jews and Gentiles conspired to kill him. But that was not an accident. It wasn't an indication of failure. His death was a part of God's plan. And we know that because he was raised from the dead by God. And that resurrection was predicted by King David. Now, uh, you may not be a a Christian uh, and you may not be familiar with King David, but he wrote many psalms that were kind of the worship songs for Israel. And one of his psalms says this, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope. And this verse is so important. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One experience corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Israelites. Now, this is, this is Peter commenting on that psalm from King David. Israelites, I may say to you confidently that our ancestor David has both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, though, he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would put one of his descendants on his throne. For seeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying, He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. So let me unpack this part of Peter's speech and his commentary on the psalm. Basically, King David is a man who said about God, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One experience corruption. But as Peter points out, everybody knows King David is buried nearby. His tomb is for anyone to see and inside of it, David's body is corrupting. So the conclusion is, this psalm, which was written by David, was not fulfilled by David. And if it's not fulfilled by David, who fulfills it? Well, Peter says, it's Jesus. It's, his, it's David's descendant. David's descendant is Jesus, and he died, and he rose from the dead. His body was corrupted, but he was not abandoned to Hades. Peter is making a case from the Old Testament that Jesus is the one predicted by this psalm. David's body is corrupted. David was abandoned to Hades, but Christ's body was not corrupted, and Christ, although he went to Hades, was not abandoned. Now, Peter doesn't just say this in his sermon. He actually writes this in some of the letters we have in the New Testament. In 1 Peter 3.18, Peter says, Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. 
First Peter 4, 6 says something similar. The gospel was proclaimed to the dead so that though that they had been judged in the flesh as all are judged, they might live in the spirit as God does. Peter continues this theme from his big sermon in his letters and says that Christ descended to the dead. But Peter isn't one of the only apostle uh, that says this. Paul proclaims the good news of the descent too. In Romans chapter 10, verse 7, Paul says, The righteousness that comes from faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, Paul is rejecting the idea that any human could have gone up to heaven to bring Christ down or could have gone to the, to the abyss and brought Christ up. Paul says, no, Christ freely left heaven and Christ freely left the abyss. In Ephesians 4, 9, Paul says the same thing. He's riffing on a psalm, Psalm 68, uh, which says when the Lord ascended on high, he made captivity itself captive and gave gifts to his people. And Paul comments on that psalm and says, when the psalm says he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. Again, we have an apostle who reads a psalm that is not fulfilled by David, but fulfilled by Jesus Christ. This is all about the good news that Christ descended to the dead for us. And just the word descent is such a great summary of what Christ does for us. Christ descends from heaven into the womb of the Virgin Mary. Christ descends into the Jordan to be baptized by his cousin John. Christ descends from the cross and into the tomb. It makes perfect sense that Christ would descend all all the way into the deepest pit we can imagine. Even Jesus himself gives us this image about his death. In some of his teaching, he compares himself to the Old Testament prophet Jonah. And Jesus says these words, Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster for three days, and I will be in, quote, the heart of the earth for three days. Now, if you don't know the story of Jonah, it's incredible. Jonah is a prophet called by God to go to his enemies. And Jonah disobeys God and sets sail in the opposite direction. But a storm hits the ship and uh, the sailors throw Jonah overboard. And he's swallowed up by what the Old Testament calls an old fish. And uh, an old fish, excuse me, a huge fish. And when Jonah prays in the belly of the sea monster, he refers to it as Sheol or the realm of the dead. And Jonah says from deep in the the pit, he says, in the realm of the dead, I called for help. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. If you look into Jesus's teachings, into his life, and you start comparing them with Jonah and his life, you will see connections and parallels all over the place. Jonah is sent to a rebellious city called Nineveh, and Jesus is sent to a rebellious city called Jerusalem. Jonah is swallowed up by the sea monster, and Jesus is killed by the Romans. Jonah descends to the belly of the sea monster, and Jesus descends to the heart of the earth, the realm 
of the dead. And on the third day, God caused the sea monsters to spit Jonah out on land. And on the third day, God raised Jesus up from the dead. In other words, when Jesus compares himself to Jonah, he's saying that Jonah went to the land whose bars closed upon him forever, but the gates of hell do not close on me. Now, this language of descending to the dead may be unfamiliar to you, and it's very mysterious to all of us. But just because it's mysterious doesn't mean it's meaningless. We know that Jesus is crucified on Good Friday and raised on Easter Sunday. But the church has celebrated Holy Saturday for 2,000 years because on that day, Jesus descended to the dead. And he didn't descend because he was losing a battle, but because he was winning it. And once you start to see that this is a victory, so many passages in the New Testament start to make sense. Do you remember the passage where Jesus says, I hold the keys of death and Hades? Doesn't it make sense that Jesus has those keys because he went there and took them? In Philippians 2, it says that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Doesn't it make sense that Jesus will have knees that bow to him under the earth because he went there and proved his lordship? In Romans 14... Paul says, to this end, Christ died and lived again so that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. Doesn't it make sense that Christ is Lord of the dead because he descended there and proclaimed his lordship? In Matthew 12, 25, Jesus is talking about Satan's kingdom. And he says, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man and then he plunders his house? That's the good news summarized in Jesus' descent to the dead. Christ entered the strong man's house, tied him up, and plundered him. Now, this all means that death, the thing we fear most, the thing we try to ignore, the thing we try to delay, the thing we try to fight, has been addressed and confronted and defeated by Jesus Christ. That is the good news. That Jesus descended to the dead for us. Jesus teaches it. Peter teaches it. Paul teaches it. And it's good news. And it's such good news that there has been Christian art dedicated to this glorious event throughout the church's history. If you look up on the screen, you'll see Jesus standing on the gates of hell. And he's reaching down and pulling up Adam and Eve from out of their graves. And he's pulling them out of their graves by their limp wrists. They aren't pulling themselves up by their own strength. They aren't contributing to their salvation. Jesus, their savior, the conqueror of Satan and death is doing all the work. And he is victorious. There's a sermon by an ancient theologian named Thomas Aquinas that just beautifully summarizes this whole event. And it's worth reading in full. Today there is a great silence over the earth. A great silence and stillness. A great silence because the king sleeps. 
The earth was in terror and was still because God slept in the flesh and raised up those who were sleeping from the ages. God has died in the flesh and the underworld has trembled. Truly, he goes to seek out our first parent like a lost sheep. And he wishes to visit those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. He goes to free the prisoner Adam and his fellow prisoner Eve from their pains. He who is God and Adam's son. The Lord goes into them holding his victorious weapon, his cross. When Adam, the first created man, sees him, he strikes his breast in terror and calls out to all, My Lord be with you all. And in Christ, Christ says to Adam, And with your spirit. And grasping his hand, he raises him up, saying, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. I am your God, who for your sake became your son, who for you and your descendants now speak and command with authority those in prison, come forth, and those in darkness have light, and those who sleep rise. I command you, awake sleeper. I have not made you to be held a prisoner in the underworld. Arise from the dead, for I am life of the dead. Arise, O man, work of my hands, arise. You were fashioned in my image. For you, I, your God, became your son. For you, I, the master, took on your form, that of slave. For you, I, who am above the heavens, came on earth and under the earth. For you, man, I became as a man, without help, free among the dead. For you, who left a garden, I was handed over to Jews from a garden and crucified in a garden. Look at the spit on my face, which I received because of you in order to restore you to that first divine inbreathing at creation. See the blows on my cheeks, which I accepted in order to refashion your distorted form to my known image. See the scourging of my back, which I accepted in order to disperse the load of your sins, which was laid upon your back. See my hands nailed to the tree for a good purpose for you who stretch out your hand to the tree for an evil purpose. I slept on the cross. A sword pierced my side for you, who slept in paradise and brought forth Eve from your side. My side healed the pain of your side. My sleep will release you from your sleep in Hades. My sword has checked the sword, which was turned against you in the garden. But arise, let us go. The enemy brought you out of the land of paradise, and I will reinstate you. No longer in paradise, but on the throne of heaven. I denied you the tree of life, but now I myself am united to you. I who am life. The cherubim throne has been prepared. The bearers are ready and waiting. The bridal chamber is in order. The food is provided. The everlasting houses and rooms are in readiness. The treasures of good things have been opened and the kingdom of heaven has been prepared for all eternity. Amen.